before I jump in, um, someone came up and grabbed me this morning. Um, I believe she has a Jewish background and um, became a believer recently, baptized in April, I believe, April or May. And she was just telling me that multiple, multiple of her Jewish friends have been phoning her about baptism and interest. And when you, when you hear about these things, isn't that just a wild move of God? He is the same God that is wooing hearts and drawing us near. We were praying this morning, there is a deep longing in every individual, a deep ache to be connected to the living God. No matter what your journey has been, no matter what's been shoveled on top, I pray that today would just be a removal of all of that dirt and just a pure flow of connectedness to Jesus himself. I, I long for us to be in the place where nothing is in the way of love. Nothing in, is in the way of love itself. You know, love has a name. His name is Jesus. He is still after your heart. He is still after your entire being. He is relentless in the best way possible. And, and he won't stop just spilling forth his love. He's, he gave it all for you. Death upon a cross. What more can you give but the life of your own son for your sake? His love poured out, liquid love poured out, his hands, his feet nailed to a tree, his side pierced for your life, beaten and bruised for your life. And I just, I just sense this, this rich connectedness is, is just something he's longing, he's longing in each and every one of our lives for us to return to that place. Or maybe you've never gotten there before, but he's like, come on in. There's nothing like that connectedness and that union with Jesus himself. And so I just want to invite you into that this morning, that even as we open up the word, that we would all be sensitive to his leading. Can this be a house where we are sensitive to the leading and the voice of the Lord? And uh, I was just even talking with some friends last night, and it's like, it's such an honor to prepare a teaching and a message for you guys week after week. Like the highest honor, right? But I find myself week after week, like Jin down here, face down before the Lord. And just like, God, I, I am just a guy who gave my yes. And I, and I desire to bring something of worth and value to see lives changed by the power of Jesus. But what I ache for what I ache for is face-to-face, life-to-life, person-to-person connectedness with Jesus himself. And so even as we open up the word today, this is not just about me performing. Gosh, none of this is about a performance. You did not come to a show. You did not come to, to see if you like this place. We're, we're here to engage with the living God. All this is for him. All this is for him. And so if there's any kind of that performance or comparison or any of that worldly system, it's got to leave. It's, it's got to get out. And I, I felt led this morning specifically to open up to John 5, and we're going to be talking about uh, the rejuvenation and replenishment of hope in our lives. So let's turn together John 5. Did you know that the biggest issue that you face in your lives is actually to discover who Jesus really is? What you believe about God is the most important thing about you. It's everything. It's where your identity comes from. It's where your identity is nourished, where you are built up, where you find purpose and meaning. It's where you find direction for your life. It's where you find the wind in your sails of where you're supposed to go and who you're supposed to marry and who you're supposed to interact with. It all comes back time and time again about what our belief is of God and what our relationship is to him. And your relationship to God will be directly dependent on what you believe about him. If you believe that God is like the, the, the um, Lincoln Memorial and that he is this stone this stone carving of a God that just looks over from a distance of your life, you're going to treat him as such. But if you know that he is a father that, that created you in your mother's womb for a purpose, 
and that he truly, truly with everything, all of his attention and focus and love is directed towards you in the mystery of his great love. And to know that he likes you. He doesn't just, he's not just forced to love you. He loves you because he loves you, because he loves you, because he loves you, because he loves you, and he likes you. This is the God that knows us through and through. This is the God that we, that we freely and willingly get to discover more and more of what his attributes are like day after day as we, as we walk with him, as we abide with him in the garden, as we face different circumstances and situations. And he's like, here's another difficulty you want to discover what I'm like again? And so rather than looking at your difficulty and your problem and, oh, I've got to face another problem, another relationship's just a burden in my life, he says, it's time to look to me. It's time to actually renew your mind in what God is like and what I'm like to you and to who you are. And all of a sudden, your problems become opportunities for God to actually reveal what he is really like. Every problem that Jesus faced was an opportunity for a miracle. What has changed? It's the leaning into the kingdom of God, elevating to a higher level and saying, God, these things that are so earthly before me, that are pulling me down, I have got to get a heavenly perspective. And it all comes back to what we believe about God. If you believe he is a, a, a firm, stern, punishing kind of father, you're gonna relate to him as such. But if you know that he's a, lo- a father that is drawing you in, that you can come like a child before him, that, he, that he's like the father uh, in the story of the prodigal son that takes his son and he's looking actively, wraps him in robes of righteousness, puts a finger, puts a finger, puts a ring on his finger, throws a feast and says, this is my son. This, this is a different perspective of how we relate to God. And so I believe God is moving us into that face-to-face kind of relationship. We've been talking for a few weeks about uh, becoming the dwelling place for God, as well as examining that we are part of bringing heaven on earth. We have an open heaven. His name is Jesus. And so we have to be those that shift our thinking and our belief system to know that God is moving through his church to see heaven come to earth in a mighty and powerful way. Amen. So here we have John chapter five. John knew that the ache within us was to discover the purpose and meaning of life. The, the Greeks at the time would, would obsess over discussion of what the meaning of life is. What's the true purpose of life? And he brings it home straight out the gate in John chapter one. and says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. John is determined to prove that Jesus is God and Jesus is the meaning of life. John, the author inspired by the Holy Spirit, is about to go strong in in chapter five of John. He is specific in emphasizing that Jesus's miracle working power for physical healing is an evidence that he is the Messiah and he is the son of God. John, unlike the other Gospels, if you're not familiar, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels. And John isn't as concerned as the other Gospels about the exact timeline. He's not concerned about when the different events are taking place as much as unveiling the truth that Jesus is God. That is his purpose. That is his point in writing. And that is the overarching theme of this passage, that Jesus is revealed as God's son. Jesus is not just a prophet. He is not just a good moral teacher. He is God. And there's two parts of this teaching that we're going to dive into. The first half is this all about what the text is saying and what, and then we're going to get into what it means for our lives. And so there's a lot of thinking. We're going to go to a little Sunday school class for a moment in time, and then we're going to hit it home with what this means for our life and go deep together. Sound good? So examining the text and then extracting the principles. So John chapter five, somebody say, fire it up. up. Let's go. Somebody say, let her rip. rip. All right. You ready? All right. Just threw that in there. All right. Verse one. After this, we're already pausing. After this. After what? 
Well, all these things that John is writing about, but it's kind of a vague term after this because, like I said, he's not going necessarily chronologically. If you want to understand John in a more scholarly, studious kind of way, you have to understand that John isn't just trying to set up the book with an obvious timeline. There's no clear chronology. And sometimes people get in trouble when they're looking at, at um, the book of John and trying to make it all make sense chronologically. But he's not as interested in the sequence as he is of the, the how. And so, like we see in Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke, they're called the synoptic gospels. He is more concerned about the strategic content that he's trying to logically display to those reading. And so the synoptic gospels, that's a big word to describe Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first three of the set of four in the gospels. They're called synoptic because they can be seen together. You can actually look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and a lot of the stories are aligned in a timeline kind of fashion, and you can compare and contrast. You can flip forward and you can flip back and see, oh, this, this description of this particular miracle includes this, and this one, oh, it adds a little bit uh, adds a little more detail. And you can see the different accounts of these followers of Jesus inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so uh, synoptic means seen together, and we can, we can see this sequence within each of the three different synoptic gospels. But John is using after this, basically saying, the next thing that I want to tell you is this. So listen up. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. Now, the Jews have a whole lot of feasts throughout the year, if you're not familiar. And John doesn't go into detail of what the feast is. And so it's a bit of a question of what this particular feast is. And um, apparently it's not that important because, again, he's not all about the win. It says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He was in Galilee and he went up to Jerusalem. So, you know, normally we say, I go up to Santa Barbara because it's north. Um, I need to do that again. I love Santa Barbara. <laughs> but Jesus went up to Jerusalem from Galilee, which he actually went south, but it's up because it's at a higher elevation. A lot of history today, let's go. Went up to Jerusalem. I told you, welcome to Sunday school. Um, verse two, now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool. Um, there are about eight gates in Jerusalem currently, and there's the old city of Jerusalem, and it was fortified. And there is a gate called the Sheep Gate. It's still there today. They would use this gate to bring in all of the sheep and all of the lambs for sacrifice. And so when they dedicated the temple uh, with Solomon, they brought in 120,000 lambs. That is larger than the population of Redding, California. That is about double the population of Culver City. 120,000 sheep they brought in. And so fittingly, they, they used this gate as a, an entry point for uh, animals that would be sacrificed. Um, you can imagine they'd be kind of dirty. They would also place by this gate those individuals who were considered unclean or invalids or suffering from any kind of blindness or, um, or cripples. They would put by this gate. And so this is the setting that we're at. Verse two, there is the sheep gate, uh, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Um, you can also see in some translations, it's called five roofed uh, porticos. And this, this location, um, you can actually see it today. You can go to Jerusalem and see this pool of Bethesda. For a long time, historians were stumped because they couldn't find where this location was. But in the 19th century, they discovered it. And so individuals that were, you know, looking at scripture and seeing, trying to be critical of what scripture is in the different sites, once again, God proves himself accurate by, um, God is very accurate, by the way. <laughs> he proved himself to say it's exactly where the location is in Jerusalem. A few blocks from the temple, they found the Pool of Bethesda. And so these colonnades or porticos are kind of like modern-day cabanas, just not as fancy. So if you've been to Las Vegas and you slapped down $2,000 for your poolside cabana, it is not like that, not at all. This is a shaded area where a lot of the, the individuals that were suffering were sitting. 
Okay, now turn in, in your Bibles to verse 4. You find that? Some of you did. You get it? So this is one of those areas in Scripture that is a little bit hotly debated because most translations do not include verse 4. King James Version, New King James Version does include it with a nice footnote that tells us it's not included in all manuscripts. And so I actually just wanted to talk a moment about why that is. But let's read it first. Um, the New King James Version says, in, in these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease that he had. Now, we can read that, and my point is not getting you to doubt Scripture. In fact, the opposite. Uh, there's only about 15 verses in all of the New Testament where there's kind of a similar note where it's, it's potentially not included, but they include it in the footnotes. And one thing to keep in mind is that none of these verses in the New Testament that, that have a little bit, bit of this question if it should be included as canon of Scripture or not, none of these verses have any doctrinal debate on on, on the importance of the theology of the verse. Usually they are more descriptive or narrative moments that don't impact key theological discussion. It comes from a science called textual criticism, and there's, there's no original manuscripts of what we are reading today. We don't find Paul's actual handwriting in Greek that we're able to read, but we have a myriad of of texts that are passed down from, through the generations and, and such a, a staggering kind of um, taking the original text in the Hebrew and the Greek, passing it down from generation to generation where they would not miss a dot or a tittle in their kind of portrayal of, of the original text. And so... Um, Side note, my, my Great Dane's middle name is Tittles, and I can hear the front row laughing a little bit about that. I set you up. Daughter Tittle, it's in scripture, Jin. But I remember years ago, I went through my own, I went through my own discovery of like, okay, we're reading scripture, but how do I know that I can rely that this is the word of God? How can I know that someone didn't add something or take away something how are we supposed to know? And I want to encourage you, if that is um, something that stumps you or that you're curious about, there's an incredible book called The Journey from Texts to Translation. This is by Paul Wegner. And, and this is a classic textbook that you'll find in different schools of thought that, that bring a confidence when we're reading scripture. Why, why have we included um, the Hebrew texts in this way? Why have we included the Greek texts in this way? And the manuscript evidence, I have to tell you, for the reliability of the book that you hold in your hands is unparalleled. And it is reliable. And I, I don't want to go too deep into this and do a full teaching on why that is the case. But we have to know that when we look at verses like verse 4 and why it is or is not included in Scripture, we look at the age, the quality, and the frequency in its occurrence in all of the different manuscripts that we see throughout history. Sound good? Uh, these scribes were absolutely dedicated in their accuracy. You can even go to, um, there's, there's where they discovered Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls are in Israel by the Dead Sea. Um, you can go there and see where they would um, have communes of scribes, where they were so committed to giving their lives for the sacredness of the word that they would write like one word and then they would dip themselves several times in a cleansing pattern. They, they took it so seriously when they would transcribe that they did not make mistakes. They knew the sacredness of the word and they knew that their lives were dedicated towards the generations to come getting the accurate word of God. In fact, only 0.5% of all of the words in scripture are even disputed. That's five words in a thousand and none of them are relevant to the message. And so all that to say, you can be very confident in the scriptures that we are reading today. Verse three, you guys like Sunday school? Yeah. Okay, 
little, little different pace today. Verse 3. In these lay a multitude of invalids. So under these porches, under these, these not fancy cabanas, lay a multitude of invalids, the blind, the, blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. Verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. So the question, the question comes, was this guy placed there as a child? Was he kind of like a reject to his family and maybe he's in his mid-40s and he's just been there his entire life? Was, did something happen later in his life that he was then placed there for 38 years? When people had disabilities or illnesses of any kind like this, they were often the outcasts of society, considered unclean. And he's 38. Was he placed there at what time in his life? I've heard that the, the average age of death was 40 at the time of Jesus. That doesn't necessarily mean that people only lived till 40, but people would die earlier in life. Someone lived till 60 or 70, but the average age of death was 40. Let's look now at verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? John, once again, is emphasizing the lengthy amount of time that this man had been waiting for, for some degree of hope. And when this man named Jesus kind of awkwardly comes over to him and asks him a question, do you want to be healed? I mean, if you think about that in your own life, I'm sure most of us know someone that is suffering from some sort of chronic condition. And it can completely... Uh, consume someone's life depending on what it is. And there's, there's a sensitivity that we have to have when discussing with these individuals. And if someone came up to them and said, do you want to be healed? Don't you think that that would almost be a little bit of a slap in the face? Like a little bit of an insult of sorts? There's, there's kind of an insensitivity there. And isn't it obvious? Well, of course I want to be healed. And we're going to come back to that. Verse 7. The sick man answered him, sir... I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. So this man is asked a question, do you want to be healed? And what he does is give this excuse. Rather than actually answering the question, he says, hey, I'm, I'm trying to get into this water where there's some sort of, is this miraculous? Is this superstitious? We don't fully understand. Did this happen where there's a miraculous um, stirring of the waters? Is, is this just some sort of natural hot spring and these people are having some degree of hope? What's exactly going on here? And, and so he gives Jesus this answer, I, I can't get into the water to get healed. He's giving the frustration of his story, almost a victim kind of mentality. And we don't really know if, if this really is kind of a miracle water kind of situation um, or his superstitious hope. Verse 8. Jesus said to him, and here's the, sh here's the shift. He says, get up, take up your bed, and walk. There's three commands. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. Isn't it interesting that Jesus, who is love and compassion itself, he doesn't describe his immense sympathy and continuing to ask questions. Are you doing okay? Do you know what you're going to do with... You know, he just, he just cuts to the chase. Get up, take up your mat, and walk. There's a strength and a boldness in his command. But one of these is kind of odd, isn't it? Get up, take up your mat, and walk. Why, why take up your mat? It's such a simple command. Why grab your mat? Uh, a mat at this time would have probably been fairly uncomfortable, honestly. Like, especially if you don't have funds. So you're looking at, like, maybe two layers of something thin stuffed with some straw. And imagine with me someone that has been laying on this thing for 38 years. Do you think that thing is clean? Do you think that has a fresh Febreze smell to it? <laughs> Absolutely not. Why do you need to take up your mat? Leave that thing behind. You just got healed, right? But notice what Jesus is doing here. He doesn't call out the faith of the individual. He doesn't say, you of great faith, be healed. You who were obedient, be healed. You who asked for healing, be healed. 
He doesn't do any of that. Just we find Jesus showing up, demonstrating his sovereignty over sickness. Because this is all about Jesus is the son of God. The one who spoke and the worlds were formed is also the one who can speak and sickness flees. Verse nine, and at once, instantly the language is, is, is packed with. At once, this man was healed. He took up his bed and he walked. But look what happens next. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to this man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Isn't this ridiculous? These religious leaders were kind of psychopaths. They had so much pride, so much religious pride and control that they were taking the law and adding hundreds of other laws just in their own volition. And they were psychotic in trying to get people to obey every law. Do you think Jesus made a mistake here and healed on the Sabbath and told this man to take up his mat and said, oh, I should have waited, I should have waited till it was after the Sabbath. <laughs> Jesus is very intentional in what he's doing here. Very intentional. He didn't just stumble into this situation. Oops, that's right, that's right. Put down your mat, we'll heal another day. He is head on confronting the added ridiculous rules created by the spirit of religion by these hypocritical, prideful religious leaders who are come to pounce in with their control of one another. And it's gotta be said that rules, that rules are still being added to religion day after day, aren't they? And when people are adding these kind of rules, that becomes a big problem. Most of the issues we face aren't necessarily chapter and verse debates, though there's plenty of that going on. It's the, I believe we ought to do things this way. It's all this extra stuff that causes problems and divides and separates and causes, causes really an oppression to take place often in the church. John chapter five, this was the day, the day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath, it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. This guy had been healed after 38 years and they're like, you can't do that man, put down that mat. Lay back down. <laughs> as ridiculous as that is, it got me thinking. Like, when God shows up in different situations and circumstances, when it goes outside of our box and our grid, we're like, that's a little weird. Is that God showing up? Wait a second. I don't like how that was done. I don't, I don't like how God moved. All of a sudden, we become, in our own way, a little bit pharisaical, don't we? Because we're uncomfortable with how God decides to show up or how someone is responding to a move of God that then we put on our hats of criticism. It might not be to this extreme, but there's just a little bit of a pinging within me of like, oof, where have I done that? Where have I gone into places and, and I treat it like a little bit of a review? And I'm like, okay, I liked this element, but this, this part, mm, I didn't like the accent. You know what I mean? <laughs> Don't we do that all the time? Probably some of you do, are doing that today. It's all right. Be free. Be free. Verse 11. The man answered them, the man who healed me, that, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And so he's, he's feeling in this moment a bit of pressure that they're putting on him. And he, he just kind of, I don't know how innocent he is. I don't know what's necessarily going on in his heart, but he kind of blame shifts back to Jesus. That guy, that guy told me to pick up my mat. It was that guy. I don't know his name, but that guy. Verse 12, they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, I think this is really fascinating because some scholars don't actually believe that this man became a follower of Jesus. He had a miracle happen in his life so dramatic, 
But every time that God chooses to move miraculously, it's, it's a, a crossing in the road. It's a decision point. It reveals who he is, but we still, with our willpower, get to choose which path we're going to take. And so it's not a typical story where Jesus shows up, a miracle happens, the man repents and says, I want to follow you with everything. We don't necessarily see that take place in this story. But the next verse actually tells us where this man's heart was. Verse 15, the man went away, told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Now, is he being, is, is he being conniving in some kind of way? I don't know. I don't think so. But there, it, there seems to be some confusion taking place. There wasn't this, this heart change within him to, to, to take a dramatic stand to, to follow Jesus. It seems to me like he's basically turning Jesus in and not wanting to be judged by the Pharisees. Verse 16. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This story is all about revealing Jesus as God through the miracle-working power that he demonstrated and fulfilling Jewish prophecy that he is the Messiah, revealing the face of the Father through the person of Jesus. All right, are you guys ready to extract some principles now? Ready to get into it? What does this story mean for us? What does it mean for us? I think there's a few motivations alive within this scripture. Number one, the first motivation, shift our focus from time to trust in Jesus. Twice in this story, it emphasizes time. Why is that? The hardest part of our difficulties isn't necessarily how difficult and heavy and dark something is to us. Because you might be going into a situation that is so dark, you can't even see the hand in front of your face kind of darkness. And as hard as that is, the most difficult part of a trial is when you don't know the timing. You don't know how long that's going to last. That pain that you're experiencing, that might just go on and on. Where's the way out? Because if you knew this is going to end in two days, you're like, I can handle that. I, I can do that a couple days. This is hard, but I, I have a way out. But when you don't have an end point, that pain is real, isn't it? And as hard as that is, the hardest part of a trial is the duration, the amount of time that it lasts and the uncertainty. It's so much easier to go through something when you know the end point, but not knowing the end point of that pain hurts deep. The man at the pool of Bethesda, 38 years. What do you think is going on in his emotions after six months of being there? Six months, day after day, just sitting there begging, can't do anything about it. Now all of a sudden, six years passes, still there. Is there any way out of this? I mean, six years is a long time, but 38 years? I mean, that's got to be the majority of his life, if not almost all of it. And at a certain point, you start to settle into this, this belief, this is it. This is just how it's going to be. When did he settle into never? I'm never going to walk. I'm going to die on this cot by this pool with these people. This is it. This is just how it's going to be. At least that's how it will be when you focus on time. And as time passes, you think this thing is less and less likely to happen. Less likely. That becomes, your, that becomes your train of thought. As hope starts to diminish, this is less likely to take place. Time is passing. And that's why we have to shift our focus from time to trust in Jesus. I don't want to just make this a cheesy little Stop worrying about time. Just trust in Jesus. All right, everyone go home. Enjoy your Sunday. It's not that easy, is it? Oh, yeah, just trust in Jesus, guys. 
But hyper-focusing on time, passing without leaning into trust is dismissal and leads to despair and disengagement from your purpose. But if we're able to get our focus on what really matters and what really matters for your life is that Jesus is our living hope. He is our living hope. And as you focus more and more on him and fix your gaze on him and spend time with him, the, the weight of these clocks that you're holding, feeling time pass, are going to drop and be alleviated as, as you actually think about eternity and you think about your eternal purpose and destiny. And as you know that this life, whether these things take place or not, I have a living hope. His name is Jesus. And yes, I want to see his kingdom manifest here in this area. But even if, even if this does not take place, I'm going to infuse with the hope of the Holy Spirit to know that into eternity, I know the eternal one and that I'm with him now. And no matter what the thing is that feels like time is ticking and causing this, this dismay in my life, I'm going to choose to lay that down and surrender. And I'm going to choose to open my hands and trust Jesus. Because if he's as good as he says he is, if he's, if he's as good and merciful as these pages of scripture tell us, he will bring a, a fruitfulness in hope once again. So how do we get out of being time-focused and lean into trust? Number one, we have to dismiss the lie. The lie is the longer the time, the less likely Jesus will answer. You have to say to yourself, you have to journal it, you have to speak it out loud, you have to pray it out loud, this is a lie. This is a lie that the longer the time is happening, the less likely Jesus will answer. Secondly, God is a God who answers at the right time for those who are yielded to his purposes. And I have to add that caveat, those who are yielded to his purposes, because you can, by your own willpower, deflect the purposes of God time and time again. He gave you that ability, that willpower, that choice. But if you are living obedient and surrendered and yielded and abiding in him and listening to his voice, you don't have to fear a thing. You don't have to fear a thing because he is a God that is the good shepherd that will lead you on the paths of life. You don't have to fear decisions that you're making. If you're, if you're opening yourself up to the Lord with, with faith and obedience, put, put your faith that he will lead you on the path of life. You're not gonna make a wrong decision if you're living yielded and trying to lean in and, and listen. He'll lead you on the paths of life because he's the good shepherd. And secondly, we have to determine to wait. Waiting is one of the hardest things that we do. And it's also the best thing that we do. Waiting is a journey of trust. In fact, waiting is where you develop real trust. I don't know if you can develop trust in any other season except for waiting and dependency. Psalm 62.5. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Do you sense that, that spilling out your heart before him? that being real with him. He's not, he's not threatened by your realness. Come before him. I was just reading, I was just reading this week a, a few portions of scripture and I was just, just noticing that like time after time, um, Israel would go off track. They would be doing their own things. God's people would be in rebellion. But time and time again, God answered in faithfulness by their simple crying out to him for help. That's all it took. They cried out for help again, and he answered them with his loving kindness. And I think about that in our own lives. If you've gotten off track in any kind of way, just cry out to him. His loving kindness will meet you right where you're at. And third, just like Colossians 4 says, devote yourself to prayer. We have to con uh, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Colossians 4.2. 
Commit your way to him, trust in him. We get to learn what we profess, learn to be a man or a woman who may not have seen the breakthrough yet that you're longing for, but you devote your heart and your prayer life to God. So we shift focus from time to trust in Jesus. And secondly, we shift our focus from obstacles to hope in Jesus. Now I wanna talk to you a moment about what we think about. Our thought life is so important. Jesus says to this man, do you wanna be healed? He's asking him a great question. The all-knowing, tender, mercy-hearted Jesus knows all things and he knows our obstacles. He knows that your marriage might be crumbling. He knows that, that you might be still in a place of singleness. He knows that you don't have kids yet. He knows that your kids might be struggling. He knows the prodigal that's in your life. He knows your chronic illness. Somewhere along the timeline, that hope begins to dim. There's the waiting and the trusting, but that begins to dim. And this question that he asks is massively insightful to whatever the burden is that you are carrying. Do you even want this anymore? Do you even want this anymore? Do you want to be healed? Hope is the confident expectation for something better tomorrow. Hope is the confident expectation of God's goodness coming for you another day. And so we have this eternal hope, but we are also fashioned to have a hope in this lifetime, to see God's goodness and mercy surely follow us all the days of our lives. It's not too late. I wanna speak to you, it is not too late. And a lot of you have been trapped in a lie that it's too late. You've been trapped in a lie either from your own decisions or things not working out. And God speaks into your situation, into your life today. It is not too late. The story is not finished for you in those areas of lacking hope. I want to now invite up Cass um, to share a quick testimony about waiting in hope. Let's welcome Cass. Hi guys, how's it going? Good. Um, I'm just going to share a little bit about my story. I had an autoimmune disorder for 12 years, and I was diagnosed when I was 16. Um, it was called POT syndrome. I don't know if anyone's familiar, but um, it's basically where your oxygen doesn't reach your blood quick enough. And anytime you raise your heart rate at all, being surprised, scared, excited, running, exercising, you black out or you pass out. And I got it when I was 16. Just, you know, when you're a teenager, you want to do a bunch of stuff. And um, I had to stop all of that. I would go up every Sunday trying to get healed, just getting prayed over constantly. And it would never happen. It would never happen. And the doctor kept saying, oh, it's common between the ages of 13 and 23. So I thought, okay, when I turn 24, I'm going to be healed. It's going to be amazing. I turned 24, nothing. Still the same stuff. Life is just as hard. And I think it was finally, it actually is, really has to do with this, obviously. Um, but... <laughs> um, but I finally realized when I was 26, I realized that you have the authority to help others be healed, but also you have the authority to be healed. So I didn't really realize that for myself until then. And I had a really good friend of mine pray over me. Um, and we were like, we're going to be healed. We're going to get healed today. And we started praying and I felt completely different, like a huge weight lifted off my shoulders. But it's hard because I've kind of felt like that before sometimes when people prayed over me thinking, you know, I'm healed. And the next day I decided I'm going to run and see what happens. <laughs> and I started running and nothing happened at all. I was like, <laughs> thank you. And yeah, I was just, I was like crying while I was running because I was like, thank you, Jesus, just yelling out. And yeah, I've been healed for almost three years now. So yeah.
I'll announce it to you guys. I was going to say, Cass, can you pray over individuals that um, specifically have like chronic sicknesses? Um, I know it's vulnerable uh, sometimes to share that, but would you guys, if you're able to, stand up if you have a chronic illness? Yeah, just to clarify, if you've got a chronic illness, and I just want to let Cass release this testimony over you guys. Also, if you're around them, can you um, stand up and lay hands on them? Thank you so much, Jesus. God, you know all of these individual stories, God. You know how long they've been suffering with these chronic illnesses, Jesus. And I just pray that you give them the strength and confidence to accept the authority that they can and will be healed, Jesus. We just pray that you fill them with your comfort and your strength and keep that faith so strong in them, Jesus. I just pray that they continue to come up to church and get healed. They continue to have hands laid over them, God. I pray that you help them to realize their purpose in this life and that just because they have an illness does not mean that they are lost or that they cannot figure out how to get fixed or how to be helped, God. I pray that all discouragement goes away. I pray that they just feel a newfound hope and a refreshing just a refreshment in their spirit, God. Jesus, I just pray that these people find that they can be healed and they find that there is a possibility, that there is hope and that you have perfect timing for them and that they don't rely on the time, they rely on the trust in you, Jesus. We just thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. One of the reasons it's so easy to stop hoping is because more than anything, hope can be painful. It can hurt. Hope can hurt. And because it's painful, then we settle into coping. Our coping, it's, it's because this hope feels unattainable. And so we disengage with it and we settle into that coping. And because it hurts less. And I understand that settling and coping is a temptation, but we can't stay there. We can't stay there. We were made for more, and you have more. His name is Jesus, and he really doesn't want you to settle for less. He wants you to live in the abundant life that he paid for by his death, burial, and resurrection life. And he still is a miracle-working God. God still wants to show up and reveal himself through your life. And so whatever your obstacle is today, your endless debt, your career isn't working out, your relationships are failing, you feel like a failure because you haven't accomplished what you want to, we have to live as those who are surrendered and yielded because he promises to us, whatever you're going through, nevertheless, I will be with you. I think that is one of the greatest promises that the Lord has given us. Nevertheless, whatever you're facing, I will be with you. He is Emmanuel, God with us. This is God come to earth, and he, and he is the God by the Holy Spirit that has chosen to live and dwell with us. Nevertheless, I will be with you. There's not a day goes by that he has ever abandoned you. And so we have this, this anchor to our souls that we can cling to, and, and we, we, we just get to open up our lives and say, God, you are here with me. I might not feel you. I don't know what kind of dirt that I've placed on the sensitivity of my heart. I don't know if it's because of the disappointment. I don't know if it's because of the settling and the coping or whatever it is. But God wants to meet you here even today. He, he wants you to let even today be a marker in the ground kind of day. Maybe you've never even given your life to him. You're like, this hope that this guy's talking about, I, I definitely don't know that. But this sounds almost too good to be true. Do you know that the gospel means the almost too good to be true news? And that is true. <laughs> because we have a good God that loves you that much. And we have a God that is wanting his kingdom realm to be released into your life and into this world. It's the good news of the kingdom of God. And so the hope of Jesus can be alive in you even today. 
we have to live as those surrender and yielded. No matter what, we have the God of hope, literally his name, God of hope, who promises to be with us. That is reason enough to see hope ignited. You are not alone. He is more determined than you are to see the fullness of joy expressed in your life and into your purpose and promises. And now is a shifting season. This is a marker in the road kind of season for your life. Sons and daughters are coming forward in the middle of their mess and in their pain and crying out to God to save them, turning from their own ways and lifting up a cry of surrender. And I don't have it all figured out. Things feel impossible. I can be overwhelmed. I can be drowning in all of the things and the thoughts, but God. And God says, son, daughter, I want you. I choose you. Come, let me help you in your distress. Psalm 34, 4. I sought the Lord. He answered me. He delivered me from all of my fears. For those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. There's an experience that we can have. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So I want to end with this question. What are you longing to see God do? What are you longing to see him do? As vulnerable as that is, as potentially painful as that is, can we open up our hearts even today to let Jesus touch you in that place? To, can, you, can, you let, um, can you let in the middle of your distress there be a reaching out to just, can I just touch the hem of his garment even today in the middle of my suffering and my pain? Can we let just a, a simple reaching out into the kingdom of God be a touching of the power of God that brings a transformation and a release and a deliverance in your life. He is the same God that heals. He is the same God full of power. He is the son of God. He is God himself, fully God, fully man. And he is still here today, alive and well, working miraculously in our lives, seeing those that have been under shackles freed, seeing those who have been trapped in depression freed, seeing those that have been trapped in prisons of any kind freed. Jesus longs to be let in and to be infused with your life with fresh hope and fresh power today. So we shift our focus from time to trust. We shift our obstacles to hope and we shift our formulas to a first love of Jesus. We have to let go of all of the legalism of all of the, the, the rules and the forms and all the things that we make it. And he's longing for us to get freedom from that pharisaical kind of viewpoint, that cold, lifeless religion. We make our own formulas and things that I'm, I'm sure God is, is looking at us side-eyeing. But you can't execute the formulas, but, if, but continue to do that and lose if you continue to execute the formulas in your life, if you continue down the path of religiosity, you forfeited your first love with Jesus. And this is the hour that we are called to return to our first love with him. A fresh fire for Jesus to get our eyes off of the formula and back into our own love relationship with Jesus himself. And so can we ask God even today to stir up from within us a fresh love, a fresh passion for the name of Jesus in our lives?